0: Well, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them to the book of Hebrews chapter number 10. You may have that open in front of you. We do have a few young young men who are, um, it's their last Sunday with us for a while. They'll be heading off to college, Virginia and Florida. And so you be sure to give them a hard time. Ethan and David, uh, pray for them in the days ahead if you would. Hebrews chapter number 10. I need to get myself together or something here. It's not that bad. I'm just standing in front of all of you and you're making me nervous looking at me. Well, the Lord is good to us. Uh, We come to consider our subject this morning, found in our text, is one of the greatest uh, things we can contemplate that is, our Lord Jesus Christ. The pastor really only has one sermon. Uh, some way or another, he's he's preaching Christ, whether it's by implication or by direct application. Uh, and so it is here this morning. And yet it is worth saying that there's no other subject um, that has been um, misunderstood, thought about, or, or viewed throughout church history as the death and burial resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, with that, uh, we... Uh, we want to open this morning, reading the first few verses, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. For it. since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not, or they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshipper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. Thank you for all that's um, been reminded or brought to our minds so far as we've come to worship. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Some say Jesus was a revolutionary figure. That's to put it mildly. He came to turn the world upside down, teaching ethics which go counterculture, as you might say. In fact, most people who preach the sermon through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, mount emphasize that over and over: how how counter to the way the world does things, servant leadership, and uh, and his emphasis on loving your neighbor as yourself and, and all the other things that Jesus taught brings us to this great teacher. His morality and, uh, and his ethics were really to, to unravel the fabrics of, of the system of the world. His death was an outflow of that teaching, as they would emphasize, really a result of it. Uh, uh, And it was through his death that his teaching and his word, his example, would live on. Now, there is something to be said about Jesus as being a martyr in this way. And surely his teaching has transformed society as we know it. And the Bible has made an impact on the world. But surely there's something more going on in the death of Christ. Others would allude to the fact as they look at Christ and his death as being an example to the world setting the bar a little higher for the rest of us to reach. This is who you're to follow, and this is what you're to be like, and this is how you face the world. You turn the other cheek, you reach out to the oppressed, you welcome the outcast, and you stand boldly against the religious elite who would, who would abuse and persecute the world. Even in his death, he did not die for himself, he died for others, so likewise that is how we're to live and die. Now, of course, we know that, that is, there is some truth in that kind of thinking. Really, if that is all that Jesus did on Calvary, then it really loses. The gospel has lost its power, its, its efficacy. One early church father had taken unto himself around the third century to view Christ's death as a ransom to be paid. A transaction of things of origin who was a, a very... Uh, interesting character who had some really great and, and interesting imagination as he come to interpretation of scripture, and he, he saw the the death of Christ as being a payment man being under the bondage of, being under the bondage of Satan and the devil, therefore being his property and, and in his possession, and Christ in his dying would pay the ransom to Satan to deliver us from his control and his authority. Therefore, rendering humanity free. You only need to know a little bit of theology to find problems with that kind of theory as we consider the death and work of Christ. One, Satan is not autonomous. He's not, authority. He's not sovereign in that position. He, has, he does not have that kind of power. And so we see over and over, some looked at the death of Christ through this Christus victor. And that is, the cross was the battlefield where Jesus would, would put, to, put to death, death itself, and sin, and the devil, and those things which keep humanity in bondage. And that is true, we see that victory won for us on the cross, but is there something more going on? More than just Christ freeing humanity in general, is there more than just him uh, gaining victory over death and hell and the devil? Now well, the language of our text here in Hebrews chapter number 10 is very familiar to those who have been walking with us through the book of Hebrews chapter number 9 and 8 and, and even on before that, that language of sacrifices. In fact, sacrifices and offerings are mentioned 16 times in these 18 verses. It's pretty much the main theme of his thought here in this section of, of the book of Hebrews to us. But it's worth noting this morning as, as sometimes our temptation to, to not sound the same as you sounded last week or the week before, the temptation to maybe skip over this and move on to some good stuff like let us do this and let us do that. And yet I think as we look at this, there's, there's some things that are worth considering in these few verses. So I want to look at... The sacrifice of Christ under three headings may be helpful for you who take notes to jot these down. One, the suitability of the sacrifice of Christ. Secondly, uh, the substitution of the sacrifice of Christ. And third, the satisfaction of the sacrifice of Christ. The suitability, the substitute, the satisfaction. You may recall, if you look back in your Bibles, in chapter number 9, this bold statement in verse 22, uh, emphasizing for us this, this unequivocal statement, this there's no way around it, we, we have to deal with it in the terms in which he said. He reminds us, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's a pretty strong and straightforward statement. It's not meant to be debated or argued. He's asserting something that is a known fact to his audience. In fact, we might say in human history as a known fact whether people worship the God of the Bible or they worship any other deity, offering up sacrifices, offering up sacrifices over and over. It is interesting that God, as he, as he looks at these sacrifices in the book of Isaiah... In verse number 1, he says, What is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat, of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the butt of bulls or lambs or goats. You see the tension that the Bible gives to us. Sacrifices are as old as the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned against God and they made for themselves some kind of makeshift clothing. They realized they were naked and were ashamed feeling shame for the very first time. So they cover themselves. And the Bible tells us just in one verse in the book of Genesis that God, verse 21, that God clothed them with the skin of an animal and showing the symbolic nature of what man truly needed, a covering from God, the covering which would have cost the life of something or someone else, not their own life. You see that going on through the Old Testament, from Genesis to the formality and regulations for sacrifices given to the nation of Israel it was a regular part of their life. And I know we see it in the book of Genesis, Abraham offering sacrifices, Noah offering sacrifices. But when you get to Leviticus, God sets the standard, the regulations to how these sacrifices would be carried out. What they would offer up and how they would offer them up and and how the religious expression of of the nation of Israel would be shown and how propitiation would be given through sacrifices. The blood of animals and bulls and goats all through the Old Testament. And it may be appealing as it probably was for our readers of this day to look at that and say, well, well, I mean, you just said if if it takes the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin we have a religion that's steeped in the shedding of blood then we'll just keep on doing what we're doing Uh, they they say that's the kind of the symptom of insanity doing the same thing expecting a different result and God comes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and clarifies what he means here in verse number 4 it's not just the reality of sacrifices and the, and the things that they offered up, which was oftentimes seen as, as their hope. Instead of putting their faith in God and repentance and believing and following after Him, over and over you find the children of Israel offering up, filling out the checklist, giving what they had to give, the bare minimum and going on in their sin. That's what he mentions in Isaiah chapter number 1. He says, I'm tired of it. You offer the animals, I don't want them. Who, who tells you to tread my courts and my presence? Part of the problem rests in their misunderstanding of the sacrifice. Verse number 10, he says, these sacri- verse number 1 of chapter number 10, he says, These sacrifices, these same ones, continual, up year after year, are unable to make perfect those who draw near. He goes on and says that, Verse number six, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. You have not desired them in verse number five. And it's all hinging on that statement in verse number four. Look at it with me. He says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible. It can never happen. You can never... Possess the right animal, give of the right substance that you have. You can never extend something of your own work or your own wealth to, to take away, to undo sin. The blood of bulls and goats is not suitable for the task. It never was meant to be. He says in verse number 1 of, of chapter number 10, these sacrifices, which he goes on and says that he, does not, that he has not desired or takes no pleasure in. They are just a shadow of the good things to come. Contrasting all of what we see in the Old Testament of worship to the good things. How do you like that? Now, when we think about the future, how many of you think about tomorrow as good things to come? Well, I mean, not if you're watching the news. You're not thinking about the good things to come. But he says here that what God is doing, what God has done in Christ is is classified. He, He describes it not as just things to come, but good things to come. And it's good things because that which was insufficient in the death of animals, which could not represent the worshiper at all, is made suitable and met in the body and person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was not animals that sinned against God. And subjected the world to futility and curse. It was not animals that defied him and disobeyed him. Brought murder and shame and guilt upon the human race. It was Adam. It was a man who was guilty. Therefore for justice to be met out it must be a man who pays the price. And this way he speaks about here as he goes on in verse number 5. Consequently when Christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. Summing up the incarnation of Christ, coming into the world. Why did God take on flesh and walk among us? Well, in one way, the writer here doesn't, he doesn't point us to any other reason other than to be a sacrifice, to be suitable, to be offered up to God. To deal with the the inability and the impossibility which we find that he describes in verse number 4. This impossibility of blood of bulls and goats. And so what God has done has prepared for us a body. Jesus became human. He's suitable because of his humanness. His humanness. We find that earlier in chapter number 2 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he likewise himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death and the devil again he says in that same chapter verse 17 he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make perpetuation for the sins of people a man who died Man must pay the consequences of sin. Jesus became man to be that sacrifice. He was suitable. God had given him a body, taking on himself the form of a servant, the Bible tells us. But he's also suitable because he was God. The Bible tells us he was, he was a lamb, or John the Baptist crying out, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. That he was, he was suitable not just because he was man, but because he was a sinless man. He was God. He was righteous. Jesus did not need a sacrifice for his own sin. He didn't need someone to pick Uh, propitiate the wrath of God on his account or or take away his errors or do something to satisfy and make peace with God he didn't need that he had no sin he had no guilt he had no shame can you imagine just for a moment what it would be like to live this life without having having experience guilt or shame from your actions isn't that remarkable he felt sorrow he felt the weight of the curse he saw the destruction which sin caused. He he felt it every, in his in his being and every fiber of his being, really more intensely than you and I felt, because sometimes we're numb to those things. If we're just honest, he felt all of that, but never his own guilt or shame. He was sinless. He was suitable. Not only was he suitable because he was God and uh, and sinless, but he was suitable. Because he was the only one, only God could bear the burden of being offered up for our sins. I just put it another way, God accomplished in Christ Jesus in six hours what man will never accomplish in eternity facing the wrath of God. Only he could withstand what he withstood. You and I would never, will never, can never. He was a suitable sacrifice coming to do the will of the Father. Secondly, not only was he a suitable sacrifice, the Bible tells us he was a substitution. We see this in part here. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 53. Some of you recall in school that there are substitute teachers. That was a joyful day when you were in class. People come in, the teacher is gone, and there's another teacher in their place, standing in their stead, carrying on their activities and their duties and And so we see something of that in Isaiah 53 in a more profound way. And as we look at Isaiah 53 and look at the narrative of the Bible, even Hebrews chapter number 10, we we come to this reality that he... More than just merely becoming a martyr, more than just setting an example of morality, more than just changing the ethics of the world, something else deeper was going on at the cross. He was something more profound happening, and that was the fact that he was being our substitute. He was being offered up. We ask the question, who offered him up and and for whom? Those are good questions to ask. Well, Peter tells us in the book of Acts, as he Speaks his first sermon, preaches his first sermon in that bold declaration. You killed him. Pointing to the Jews. How do you like that? He's standing there accusing the Jews of killing Jesus. And truly that was the case. They did do that. They put, they consented to that. They carried out that. Pilate carried it out. But the Bible says God. God predetermined what would take place. That's what Peter even says. You carried out the predetermined will of the God. Notice in Isaiah 53, we see this kind of fleshed out here, beginning in verse number 4. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, and all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, or cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? What do you notice? The beginning of that, you see, you see that the declaration of verse number 4. Here is one offered up who is stricken, smitten by God. He speaks of a man who was afflicted, who was pierced and crushed. One who faced chastisement and stripes and, and the, weight of a wicked, uh, the weight of iniquity. He was oppressed and he goes on in verse number 7. He was, he was afflicted. Verse number 8, he, he faced the judgment. Verse number 8, it says that he was cut off from the land of the living. Here you see this declaration of the suffering of Jesus Christ. What he experienced in his death. Now truly as we look at the death of Christ and we see it defined for us in in many different ways, the psychological and the physical pain that he suffered, sleep deprived coming after being in the garden, praying in great agony, going from, from one mock trial to the next mock trial, his beard being pulled from his face. I can't hardly stand shaving half the time. I don't mean to make that lightly, but imagine ripping the beard from his face, beating him, saying, Prophesy to us, prophet, who struck you. Crown of thorns being placed upon his head and beaten down and, and his back being torn open and the sides being torn open with a whip so the exposure of his bones and raw nerves would be, would be constantly going up and down against that wooden tree as the weight of his body through his dislocated shoulders would push up on the on the, the pain and the tension of the nails in his hands and feet, trying to grasp for air as he, as he just waited until death came. You see this talk of the offering of Christ and the suffering of Christ, him being offered up, and man, and the whole process of that just, Making fun and mocking and and being a hand in the whole thing. The suffering of Christ often referred to as his passive obedience. Him submitting himself to the will of the Father to be offered up. More than that, we know at the the middle of this time on the cross, in the the twelfth hour, it turns dark. I I think of a darkness which can be felt. It's described in, in Egypt. God's plagues, that moment in in all of eternity where God the son and that sweet fellowship with God the father is, is not felt, is not experienced where God himself looks at his son as if the sin in which was placed upon him was his own sin, despised as if he was the guilty person in it. We don't understand the full depths of that, but he drank the full wrath of the cup of God there in the garden, being exposed. That which he dreaded and, and that which he, he shown in agony, he experienced during those three hours of utter darkness. And the only words we can have is the cry of faith of one who feels the abandonment of God. You know it very well in Psalms 22 when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Offered up. And how does the father feel of this sacrifice? This one that would be offered up? It says in verse number 10 of your text, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The King James Version says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is probably a better translation as you look at the, the text in the context of what's saying. It was, it, it pleased the Father to bruise, to crush the Son. Why? Not because he had sin of his own and because the Father was sadistic and just took pleasure in, in pain or, or inflicting pain, but because he was standing in someone else's place. Notice the text again in verse number four. It was our grief. It was our sorrow. It was our transgression and our iniquities. It was our chastisement and our peace that was at stake, which brought about his wounds. We were all turned aside, everyone to his own way. In verse number six, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the death of Christ is a substitution. He was standing there for somebody else. For our sin. For us. For us. He was offered up as a sacrifice, an offering for guilt. Cut off from the land of the living, facing oppression and judgment at the hand of wicked men, at the hand of God himself. For our sins, who did Christ die for? Well, that's a debated idea. Turn back with me to the book of Hebrews. But by hours, hours, not hours and a clock, hours—it's in us. I do not mean that, as universalists oftentimes would suggest, of all mankind. Let me clarify without exception that Jesus delivered, was delivered up for humanity in general. Now everyone enjoys the fruit of his work. If that was so, no one would need to preach the gospel, go to the ends of the earth and share the faith of, and what Christ has done for us. We just all wait until everything's made better. It's not what the Bible teaches in fact, what you see in our text is is that this doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement is a, a doctrine of confidence to those who have been sanctified. Notice in verse number 10, it says, and that by or and by that will we have been sanctified. I could say this morning that this reality that He is teaching us in chapter number 10 is a word of comfort to you who have been sanctified set apart in Christ and saved by the grace of God and, and following him, have the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the, the hope that you have, that he has stood in your place. Face the penalty and the wrath of your sin. Not only those who have been sanctified, verse number 14, he elaborates more those who are being sanctified. I will say this, those who have been sanctified will be sanctified, will be in the process of being sanctified. They might say, "Well, what does that do for those who have not been sanctified? Those who are not in Christ? Those who have never believed? Is there no hope? Did he only stand there and and do that suffering for for just one or two here this morning?" I think the writer gives us hope for that. Look again in verse number ten, or verse number one of chapter number ten. He speaks, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who, what does your Bible say? Those who draw near. Those who draw near. The doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement is not only confidence. To those who have been born again, those who have been converted by the work of the Holy Spirit, it is an invitation, It it is a call to come. Those who draw near, again he says the same thing, and let us draw near in verse number 22. Actually he says this word repeatedly six times throughout this epistle. It is a call to come to God through Christ. So it's not only a a doctrine of confidence, it's a doctrine of hope that if you would come to Christ this morning, that you would have this great hope that your guilt and your sin covered through his blood and his sacrifice. In fact, there is no other hope that our guilt and our sin would ever be covered Not only those who are being sanctified, those who have been sanctified, those who draw near. And there are many, and hopefully maybe even some here this morning, that is you. Draw near to him. Come and find life. But thirdly, not only was it a suitable sacrifice, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. We see this in verse number 10. And that by that will we have sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Showing that through his death benefited us. But it was satisfactory. There's much I could say about this. Considering the work of Jesus Christ. One it is, it is seen as satisfactory from Jesus' words from the cross. It is finished. He knew he'd paid the penalty for his sin. He knew he'd come and had finished. Completed the will of the father. Jesus Christ three days later rose again from the dead. How many of you knew that? Vindicated by the Father, this my righteous son. Even in Psalms 53, as it pleased the Father, the pleasure wasn't just in the bruising. It was the the work in which that bruising would produce. He would make him prosper. In this very same verse, that resurrection from the dead, God vindicating the son. Here he gives us several different Uh, Reasons why this was satisfactory. One, the cessation of sacrifices. Verse number 12. We'll go back to verse number 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered one for all time, a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, I I was reading uh, through the King's Chronicles in my scripture reading, I guess a couple of weeks ago. I'm getting through that. Sometimes very difficult to keep names together. But when they dedicated the temple, the sacrifices Solomon offered up, I mean, it is unfathomable to think about it. They built a temporary offering, altar just to kind of contain what he was offering up continually unto God. It's an amazing thought. Here, he's saying that the priests are continually, actively working and serving and doing, and there's no end to their work. There's no seed in the tabernacle. There's no, no place to rest because there's always a need to offer up because the work is never finished. That feels like housework for some of you, right? And here he says, but all that's done, all that's finished in one sacrifice, one time, and he emphasizes it in, in a most unique way. He sits down. He's done. There's nothing else to do. He sits down by the right hand of the Father in one sacrifice. That is remarkable. That, that, is, that is witness to us in, in, in the temple during Jesus' crucifixion. The veil of it was rent, wasn't it? From the top to bottom. As if to say, Done. Done. Not only did you see it in the Velvet of it in A.D. 70, there was an exclamation mark that there is no need to continue on. As you continue on, it is finished. It is finished in this one work of Jesus taking the right hand, now resting from his work. The second way he says in verse number 14, not only is it satisfactory in the fact that it, it, there's no more offerings to offer up, but it's satisfactory in the outcome and its ability to make perfect those who come to him. Notice again, it says, for by a single offering. Again, the offering of Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross. This is what it does. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All time. Nothing else needed to be added to it. It's, it's, it's self-containing. It's complete. Some of you recall the, the book of Galatians. since Paul writes to them. Without the niceties that he normally begins most of his letters with. He actually begins in one of the most severe ways in which you could begin a letter. And he just goes right at to the core of the issue. And the problem was that they began with faith. They embraced the grace of Christ. And this one gift of Christ paying the penalty to their sins. And forgiving them and making them right before God. And he says the problem is guys you, you keep adding to it. As if to say in, in kind of a, a coarse way. Well, that was good but watch I'll make it better. God, you did a great thing, amazing thing. That was awesome. We got Gentiles and Jews in the same room, almost at the same table. You read there, there was a little problem with that going on with Peter's life. But, but, but watch, I'll make it better. And we'll just keep adding to this and, and critiquing it and, and, and manipulating it and forming it. And Paul says, what you have done, you've destroyed the gospel. You've destroyed it. Because as you begin to add to the sacrifice, the the work in which God has done, then you begin to diminish it. It begins something other than what it was. And so much so that Paul says, those who trouble you, I wish that they would be accursed. They would be damned for their labor. You see here, the Bible tells us that God has through this one person, this one man, done everything needed to make, to sanctify those who come to him. So we can look and read in the word of God as he calls them saints, made holy, made righteous. Why? Because they were righteous? No. Because someone else came in and took what we were. Jesus taking our sin and our debt and all the the baggage and identity that went along with that. We were once these things. We were once disobedient and idol worshipers. We were once living in this state. And the Bible says when he died on the cross, he died for us. And when we come to him, we died with him. Therefore, what we once were, who we once were, is no longer who we now are. He has perfectly sanctified us. For all time for all time. Secondly, not only and well not only imperfectly sanctifying for us all time look at verse number 17 and 18 then he adds I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin. Forgiveness for all time. And that's what God offers to us the invitation of the gospel right and god will remember your sins no more not in the sacrifices and the stuff that you do but in the sacrifice in which he has given up and the thing that which he has offered up in jesus his only begotten son there is no other way there is no other sacrifice for us and he's saying where forgiveness is given through him there's no other need for forgiveness we are made right before God, never to be condemned. And there's some joy in there that is as it just put us on probation. Some of us think he ought to, right? Maybe you thought that way. But he doesn't do that. That when we come by faith to him that he gives to us everlasting life, which takes away the record of the debt which was against us, knelling it to his cross, Paul says, forgiveness of sin. Turn with me to the gospel according to Luke. As I think about forgiveness, I cannot help but think about this parable which Jesus gave. As of you may recall it, Luke chapter number 7. He goes into a Pharisee's house and reclines at the table. And there, as he's there at the table, Simon by name and A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she had learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. That's verse 37. And she anoints his feet, weeping, drying his feet with her hair, kissing his feet, anointing them. The Pharisee saying to himself, boy, if he knew her, (laughs) if he knew her. And so Jesus gives this parable, doesn't he? In verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? Simon answered rightly. Uh, There's something remarkable about the story itself. There's much going on there as he's rebuking Simon. Don't you understand? Neither one could pay. They both had a debt. He's drawing out as this this kind of illustration of forgiveness because I know there's been times in my life where I felt like the 50 kind of debt. I'm thankful for salvation, but my gratitude, my love has been rooted, well, it's just 50. Thankful that it's paid. If you're anything like me, the older I get, I realize I reflect the woman more than I do the man. I see that the debt in which I owed was much, much greater than I could ever fathom, I could ever contemplate, that I could ever pay back. Not 50, not measured in deeds of external nature, but measured in the, in the turn of my own heart and soul all the years in which I lived this life for my own glory. I, I read this parable as I think about forgiveness because it draws me back to the reality of the, the effect of that great news of the gospel, that great news of forgiveness. How could we not love him more? We who owed such a great debt. You see, he stood in our place. He paid the penalty, the debt, which we could not pay. He he stood there and, and took the blow which you and I deserved. And how transforming that is for the rest of our life. In fact, just in the simple act of Boy, how, if we've been forgiven that much, can you not forgive your neighbor, your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, your wife, your husband? How can you not, when God extends such gracious forgiveness overflowing, can we not display? And you see that in the the text, I won't won't go too much in that, we'll look at that again next week in Hebrews 10. How can we not love one another? Because this is what God has offered up to us. This perfect sacrifice. He has made a way. Your sins are forgiven. There is more grace to be had now at the throne of grace. You are now children of God. Christ is interceding for you now. Find help and strength in your journey. Come with full confidence and assurance. Notice back with me in Hebrews chapter number 10. That's what he's saying as he gets into verse number 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. That's really what he's calling us to do in the the application of this. To draw near to God. To rest in him, to trust him, to, to confide in him, take confidence in him, to find our strength and stability in him. If he has given at such extent to, our, to the purchase of us, to the redeeming of us, how shall he not with him? Paul says, give us all things freely. And when we come to him, he's given us this, this privileged position that we walk into his very presence walk into his very presence through the blood of Jesus Christ we are told to come we are told to come well beloved there is no other nothing else I can add to that there is much more that could be said I just encourage you by by the declaration that in Christ he has paid it all and if you come to him that is the confidence that you receive in repenting and turning away from your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. He said, if he has not made, he has made such a great sacrifice that you and I can come with full confidence, not doubting that we will be accepted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray for your blessing over this day and over the lives of those who come here this morning. God, I pray for those here that if there's any... Maybe some, maybe one or two that don't know you, God. I pray even now, why would they withhold from coming when they see at such great cost you made a way for us? And so we just pray for, their, uh, for them. We pray for each of us as we struggle with the things in this life that you would, you would strengthen our confidence, our stability uh, in you in what you're doing and what you've done for us. We'll give you the glory for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.